Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, and welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist, and today we are here with Sean Alex Nemeth to interview him about Chester Street Foundation. Hello, Sean. Thank you for being here with us today. Hi. I'm excited to be with you today. It's an honor. I'm excited to be with you, too. And I I think we, we might have to watch talking over each other. When we connected, I think we really connected. And I, I have yeah. so many notes surrounding me right now from reading your book and from taking it all in. I'm really excited to have you on and to share your story and your work with our listeners. Thank you, Nikki. It, it's an honor to be with you and your listeners today. Oh, thank you so much. And if, if I had to pull and start with a question, I, I think I was, I was really wondering, when did you realize that you were unalone in healing your childhood trauma? Because I think so many of us feel so alone and isolated in what we're healing, and we're really all so similar. Yeah, we are. We are. I mean, I, I, I've realized for a long time that I wasn't alone in the issue of, of my childhood, the issues that came from my childhood and the trauma that stemmed from that, from my work in the ministry. You know, being a pastor, I was surrounded by that for years. Well, I guess it, it, it took a whole turn when it went from recognizing and seeing that in others and then when it really came to the full front in my own life with the whole breakdown that I experienced in 2009, which I'm sure you read in the book. I did. I, I loved reading about it. The book is Thorns of Chester Street, and all of the proceeds go to Chester Street Foundation. Correct? Yes, that is, that is correct. And I, I just want to read for our listeners the mission statement I have in front of me, that your mission is to heal the hearts and minds of abused children through research, education, and recovery. I was so honored to make Chester Street Foundation the recipient of our Pay It Forward from our Patreon. So we donate 10% of the show's Patreon to an organization, and you are our second ever Pay It Forward donation. So we were really happy and proud to support this work because you're working to heal trauma. And one of my my issues being a trained clinical therapist is that so many people are misdiagnosed and show up to me with a list of diagnoses. And when I hear their story, I think, Mm. nope, none of that. You just have childhood trauma. Yeah, yeah. And it's true. I mean, the statistics show that children... Children who've been severely traumatized are misdiagnosed five to seven times throughout their lifetime. And it's, it's, uh, it's horrific because, 
you know, I, I remember a psychologist who came to one of our events because we do educational events, educating the community on trauma. And the psychologist told me that one misdiagnosis can completely change the trajectory of a child's life. So you think about five to seven times uh, children being put on medications that they don't need, how difficult that would be for their caregivers to care for them. Mm-hmm. So it's really become a major issue. Um, and that was, that was part of my own story. Um, as you, as you read in the book, uh, I was misdiagnosed for having the breakdown in 2009 and all the signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, having to be hospitalized. When I was released from the hospital, I was diagnosed with, uh, chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, but I was also misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder and put on medications that I didn't need. And it, and it took me from bad to worse in a very short time. It was quite the journey walking through all of that. I know that a lot of our listeners will resonate with you on this because many, I think bipolar is the new ADD and I'm seeing more and more mm. people just kind of slapped with that bipolar diagnosis because a lot of our post-traumatic stress symptoms, you know, they look very out of control. When we break down and have, you know, meltdowns, they're powerful meltdowns. So it's very easy for an, yes. a, a misinformed yes. clinician to see that as bipolar and want to make it, you know, kind of go down the route of mood stabilizers instead of releasing yeah, yeah. the trauma and, and re-patterning the nervous system to be able to be a calmer, more centered self within the body. Yeah, yeah. And, well, luckily for me, I mean, I, I had had a, a solid relationship with my primary caregiver. We, we were close friends uh, and had been for a decade. He was also my doctor. And so he had known me for a while um, and recognized that, well, when I went back to see him, he said, Sean, I can see the post-traumatic stress disorder, but I've never believed you to be bipolar. So it was because of him that, you know, he really encouraged me to get in to get a second opinion and to find a really good psychotherapist who specialized in treating adults who are abused as children. And that's really what turned things around for me. So share your story about kind of your childhood and how you got from childhood to foundation to the book. I know your story. I've read the book. Can you share with our listeners sort of the, the, the Sean story? Wow. It's, with my story, it's kind of like, where do I even start? <laughs> yes. Where do I begin? Yeah, I mean, child abuse is definitely, was definitely all throughout my story in one degree or another. I, I really found it, it surrounded my life. It came from all sides. It, you know, it came from my primary caregivers. It came from babysitters. Um, even in school, I found myself bullied. Um, my mother divorced my father around four years old. By the time I was four, I had already had experienced some severe trauma. I saw my father attempt to kill my mother uh, with me in sight um, twice. Um, one time he drove us out into the country, and I remember I remember him having a knife. And um, of course, trauma survivors will understand this, but we we remember bits and pieces. We mm-hmm. often don't remember the story from the beginning to the end. 
Um, I remember being in that car. I remember beating on the windows, trying to get out to help my mother. I remember the, 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 the terror, the panic that I felt. I experienced the same thing again when my, when my mother came to pick me up after spending a weekend with my father. He was, he was an incredibly violent man and could go from being incredibly fun to incredibly violent and unpredictable. And uh, when she came to pick, pick me up one weekend, he pulled a gun mm. and it, it felt like it was hours. I remember I, I can just see this child screaming and crying for him not to kill her uh, as he held this gun pointed at her head. It, 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 in one way, it felt like it was hours. Mm -hmm. In another way, it felt like it was over in a few minutes. That's how those trauma memories encode in the brain. Very, very strangely, yeah. a forever moment and also a flash. Yeah, yeah. I, and that's how it was. I, I, just, I remember him all of a sudden dropping the gun, dropping to his knees, crying, but picking up a bottle and throwing it at her and her having to block her head and the bottle shattering. And I remember blood that was before the age of four. I, you know, I, I remember my father holding a pillow over my face as though he's, he was playing with me. His playing was always very rough. Mm, yes. Um, and laughing hysterically while I was, doing everything I could to catch a breath. I, I literally thought I was going to die. I, I remember that, the feeling of the fear of, of that I was going to die. I think that's one of those universal things that we don't talk about or name a lot in trauma. I mean, we talk about, you know, the, the terrifying, frightening, you know, gun moments. Those make sense to us. Mm -hmm. But so many of us have in our story that sort of playful cruelty that is very hard to figure out and very confusing because we crave it. We crave our parents mm. being playful with yeah, us and, yeah. and don't understand how it crosses over from playful to terrifying. That is, that's so interesting that you say that Nikki, because so much of my relationship with my, with my biological father was like that while I was young, it was very playful. There was a lot of laughter from him but it was absolutely terrifying for me. Um, I, I remember him just seeing me scared by something I was watching on the television. I must have been three years old at the time, seeing a monster. And I ran into the bedroom and hid underneath the bed. And he came in and pulled me out from underneath the bed, set me in front of the, the television set and held my head and forced me to watch it. And I was screaming and crying and it was just that continual, you know, my therapist told me that it was torture. She mm -hmm. said, Sean, you were, you were tortured as a child. And, and it was, a, it was, it was fun for your, for your dad, for your father, but it was tort. It was, it was literally terror for you. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting because having got into to trauma research and studying trauma because of the foundation that I started um, and reading a lot of the research, I, I, I've, I've read research from Dr. Peter Levine, who's done so much research mm -hmm. and 40 plus years of research in trauma. And he talks about uh, that, that he came to believe out of his research and, and studying uh, trauma and trauma survivors that trauma is locked in when a person 
is not able to go through the flight and fight uh, process. They, they feel as though they are completely trapped and they're unable. Either they are physically or they have that sensation and that belief system that they can't escape. Well, and children can't. We can't. We can't walk out and get in the car and we can't articulate. You know, even that story you just shared, very difficult to explain to another adult how you were forced to watch TV and how that could mm-hmm. be traumatic. It doesn't make sense to our little kid brains. Yeah. I identify with it. I had asthma and my mother loved to sort of sit on top of me and tickle me till I couldn't breathe. And mm. I would panic. I would go from laughing because she was touching me to crying, trying to catch my breath. And there was some sort of delight she had in having that power and control over my little physicality. Yeah. 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 I so relate to that as well. Yeah. So we, we definitely had that sense that we couldn't get away. I, I, I lived with that feeling and that, that sense that, hopelessness. I, I felt that throughout, throughout so much of my childhood. Becoming an adult and being able to get away from it seemed like a lifetime away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, those of us who went through those types of, of childhoods, we, we lived that, we felt that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely very difficult to walk through. My I remember my therapist telling me that my, that not only my biological father, but my stepfather, they they were both sociopathic. Mm-hmm. I, I just remember the feeling of relief when she told me that. And I know that that might sound horrible for, you know, our listeners to hear. Um, but for me, it, it, I needed to hear that because it just brought such a sense of validation of what I went through as a child, especially when I went home and began to research the characteristics of sociopaths as line after line vividly described these two men who Mm -hmm. had such an undeniable impact on my life. Well, it's the truth. And the, the, the truth yeah. sets us free in that way. That's why it's relieving. It's like, oh, finally, it's this. It's this instead of something yeah. being fundamentally wrong with me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think, Nikki, for me, those first three years of treatment, getting in and learning about trauma and learning the severity of the abuse that I suffered as a child, because I really had compartmentalized so much of it. Mm-hmm and minimized it and tried to tuck it away. And, um, but getting into treatment, I, I think probably the most powerful part of all of that was that it set me on a path towards self-compassion mm. because basically at that time in my life, I didn't have any, I was ruthless with myself. And I think that we who were abused as children far too often, we, we end up taking that whip into our own hands and continue to beat and misuse ourselves, mistreat ourselves into adulthood because that's all we think that we deserved. And it's all that we knew. um, It's all that we knew. So we can only do what we know until we know something different. I mean, I'm sure that that's informed you about creating your foundation the same way it's informed me about creating this show, about wanting more people to know, hey, 
compassion is is healing. In some ways, that's to me the full definition of what healing is. It's cultivating compassion. Yeah, absolutely. That empathy, being able to empathize and yeah. It, it's brought measures of healing into my life that I don't think, you know, would have came any other, any other way for me, at least. Well, and what strikes me about your book, just to move along in your story, is that you went from this childhood at about, I think, seven years old, if I'm remembering correctly, and you wandered and found the church. Yeah, I... It, it, it was, uh, you know, m- now my, my grandmother was very influential in teaching me about God and, and, uh, and the importance of having a relationship with, you know, with Jesus. She was a, she was a big talker uh, in all of that and had very strong religious beliefs. I remember walking to the grocery store with my mother. I, I, was, I was around seven years old and asking her, there, there was this little white church, if you walk down our street and cross the railroad tracks, there was a convenience store that we would walk to, but across the street from that convenience store was a little white church. And I remember walking past that multiple times with my mom and, and one time asking her, Hey, can I go to, can I go to church there on Sunday? And she said, yes. So, (laughs) so I, I was determined to make it there and I'm sure she probably the you know, didn't even think about that or gave that any more thought after that. But sure enough, on Sunday morning, I mean, I, I got myself up, I got myself dressed uh, without an alarm clock. There was something driving me, you know. And so I, I went downstairs. My parents were passed out um, from, the, from the previous night of partying. And, uh, and, I, and I went on my little adventure down to that church. It's interesting because that church became it became my attachment mm-hmm. because I really didn't have that at home. I mean, I had it with my grandmother occasionally on weekends, periodically, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that I had on a regular basis. Does that make sense? Yeah. Consistency. Like yeah. kids really, we, they need consistency. That, I mean, that's how yeah. we feel safe that we can consistently rely on a safe adult yeah. or a safe entity. So church became consistent for you? Well, for me, I, I, I felt completely unsafe in so many aspects of my life because I never knew on a day-to-day basis what was going to happen in my home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, the, and the nighttime was incredibly fearful for me. Um, I, I could never sleep. And so going into that church, I, you know, I remember this this woman meeting me, first of all, there was, there was this young pastor and his wife that the first time that I went to the church that saw me sitting on the steps. Cause I was, I was sitting on the steps before the church even opened. I didn't know what time, you know, the church opened or what time I was supposed to go there. And, uh, I, I went there on my own. Nobody, there was nobody to walk me through. So but when they opened up the doors, uh, there was this little woman that first showed up and walked in, and she saw me sitting by myself in, in the back of the little church. And and um, I, I remember her even teaching me how to sing out of a hymnal. Her name was Mrs. Grace. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll never forget her. She was this elderly woman, and I'm sure she probably reminded me of my grandmother in some aspects. She was older than my grandmother. But the person that I loved the most uh, was my grandmother. So I'm sure that there was a connection there because of that. And I remember her, 
you know, calling me to sit with her every Sunday when I would go to that church, she would look for me and she would put her arm around me. And I just felt a sense of safety and, and calm and peace there with her. Sometimes I remember being bored out of my mind during the services, <laughs> but, uh, but I just wanted to go there because I, there, there was a consistency, you know, they were singing the same songs every week. There was somebody getting up and speaking, but there was, she was there to meet me. And I don't know, there was just something very life-giving for me. It's, it, it's amazing in, in my story. And I think that, that you probably saw this throughout my book and, and even when I go back and read it myself, because sometimes, you know, we write our stories, but then when we go back and read it ourselves, we're like, wow, I, I lived that. Yes, I have that feeling a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you do. And, and I, for me, when I go back and I read my story, it's, I think about, wow, look at the people that were there at the right times in my life that extended a hand to me and they just helped deposit something in me that kept me moving forward, even though life was so hard and so difficult. And I had that. And it, I'm a firm believer that the universe gives us many mothers and many fathers, especially when we open up and allow that kind of care in. There's a video that I show in every single live workshop that I teach, in every single online course, and I will probably continue to do so till the end of time. And it's Oprah interviewing Toni Morrison, the author. And she talks about mm. how important it is that your eyes light up when you see a child, that, that, that that's what communicates that they're seen, they're cared for, that they're happy that you exist, and how much self-esteem yeah. and self-worth is translated just by that look. That's what it sounds like to me, that Miss Grace in your yeah. church, she lit up for you. And when people light up for us, it informs us about lighting up for ourselves. And when we don't get that, it's very difficult to name that that's the yeah. problem that no one lit up for me growing up. Well, that, and, that, is, that is so powerful, Nikki. That is so powerful. And you're a seeker. And, and we're, that's what we're seeking, yeah. even when we don't know that we're seeking it, is please, someone light up for me. Please show me that I, I value, I matter, I have some worth. Because we can't, we can't just be mm -hmm. born and do that in a bubble. We're, we're tribal. Yeah. You know, we need people. Yeah. We really do. And, you know, that's, I mean, I just, I've never heard that explained like that before, said like that before. That, that is so powerful and that so resonates with me because that's exactly what I was looking for as a child. And that, that had such an effect over me I, because I remember time and time again going and standing by my mother's chair just wanting her to acknowledge me. And seeing this look of annoyance, mm -hmm. frustration, not wanting to be bothered, telling me time and time again to go away and come back later during a commercial, mm -hmm. it, was, it was so incredibly hurtful for me because I just, I just didn't feel seen. I didn't feel noticed. I didn't feel loved. And it was the people in my life, like Mrs. Grace and my fourth grade teacher that I wrote about in my book, 
who kept me after school because she obviously recognized that there were things going on in my life. And she allowed me to stay after school whenever I wanted to, to work, to help her on special projects for the classroom. And she would light up for me. Mm-hmm. My, my high school choir director, he would light up every time he, he, he saw me and, and would work on pieces of music with me. And they, they helped me to believe that I had worth and value. And when I was young, I, I didn't feel like I did. I think that's the story of so many of us that, that we grow up really yeah. feeling no matter what our sort of flavor of abuses, whether it's emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, you know, all of it, no matter what it is, whatever that flavor is, I think a lot of us grow up feeling like an irritant to our parents and and the effects of that are so far reaching and it's in those other people lighting up for us that that starts to get soothed that we start to maybe consider believing a different story yeah. about wait maybe I'm lovable and likable maybe just maybe and i think that starts to open the door for many of us as seekers to start walking a healthier path yeah i i i lived so long with that sense of uh, not being liked or being noticed or uh, that constantly living in my head, wondering what the other person was thinking about me and, and, and telling myself that they didn't like me, that they wanted to reject me. It, it's amazing how that, when that shift begins to happen, isn't it? Well, and I think you're naming the root of overthinking, for a lot of people, so many of the people that I work with, myself included, I try to I try to help them work on just what thinking is, especially for little highly sensitive observers, because we're observing so much, we begin overthinking way back then. You know, that's a love child doesn't overthink someone looking at them. Mm-hmm. You know, they just don't. They don't have that wound that creates that kind of overthinking where, uh, you know, a, a seven-year-old is wondering, am I liked? Am I likable? What are they thinking about me? Are they judging me? You know, did I make a funny face? Did I walk in here wrong? Oh, no, I, I dropped my fork. I'm an idiot. Like, you know, they don't they don't process the world that way because they've been lit up for enough. They're secure in being loved and valued. A neglected and abused child is not. Yeah. So we can't even trust the conversation we have with someone to trust that what they're showing us is real. Well, I think too, for so many, so many years, many of us had to constantly take the temperature every time we entered into a room mm-hmm. to see what the temperature was going to be, uh, if, if we could survive in that room, or if we were going to be abused again. And so that that just be that became a a, a normal defense mechanism. So I, I I found in my life in my own recovery process that many times those things that were once valuable and kept me alive actually became the things that started to hurt me the most. Oh yeah, that good old um, hypervigilance that we think is keeping us yeah. safe, and it's exhausting yeah. our exhausted, it tired bodies. Yeah. It's it's survival. Yeah, it's yeah. not living. It's not. I used it to. I used to walk in rooms and scan for weapons. 
Did you? That was part of my hypervigilance that just automatically, Uh without even thinking about it, walking in and just knowing, all right, if something goes down, I can pick up this lamp and I can swing. And that, I just, I thought that was normal as a young woman, as a teenager. Mm. And I thought how smart I was to be so proactive about taking care of myself. Sure. And I was frying my own nervous system with that. Yeah. It's it's so tragic um, how things that were so damaging became normal to us. I mean, to the point where it took other people pointing those things out to us in our journey. Hey, that's, that wasn't normal. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I remember talking, you know, at different times uh, in my life, sharing some of the things out of my childhood. And I remember one particular time sharing it with, with, uh, with this woman who I became close friends with and, looking over and, and, and seeing tears running down her face. And she said, Sean, you talk about your childhood and your interactions with your mother like that was normal. She goes, Sean, that was not normal. Mm-hmm. No healthy mother would respond to her child that way. Do you see that? And I remember, I remember standing there like I had been punched in the stomach because I really didn't see it. I think that society struggles to see it, particularly in a mother, because the, the sociopath yeah. in my life was definitely my mother. And, and I heard it in what you were sharing earlier, that to hear your therapist say like, hey, the fathers in your life were sociopathic. You know, as much as is kind of uncovering now in this current climate of secret revealing and naming our traumas yeah. and, and working on it very consciously, I think we're having an easier time sort of naming males as sociopathic. And I think Mm -hmm. when it comes to maternal energy as a society, as a people, I think we're so uncomfortable with looking at a female and, and seeing sociopath. I found in my own journey when I name that, that I have extreme boundaries with my mother because she's a sociopath that people almost can't process it. Like if I said a little green alien, you know, came down and told me stories last night, that would be easier for them to comprehend than a a mother who had multiple children being a sociopath. Yeah. I, I believe you're completely right. Uh, When I tell people that I have boundaries set in my life that have had to set boundaries in my life. I mean, when I got into treatment and, started working with my first therapist. I I was in uh, treatment for six and a half years with the first therapist. I worked with her for three years and it was during that time that I began setting boundaries with my family, with my, with my caregivers. And it was incredibly difficult for me, most of all with my mother, because I had always created this story for myself that said it was my mother and I against the world. Mm-hmm. That it was my mother and I against the monsters. Not that my mother was involved with my abuse. Not not that she, you know, not that my mother allowed the abuse. My mind would not allow me to go there. And so when I started to set those boundaries, it was incredibly difficult for me. I mean, first of all, all of it was denied, but it started to make sense as I began to unwind it. And, and forgive me, Nikki, if I'm all over the place. Oh, it's okay I, to be all over the place. I can track you. <laughs> as I begin to unwind this, 
in, in therapy for myself, it did start to make sense because even when I was in the ministry, when I was a pastor and I, I really kind of took that role with my family, I've kind of became like a, a pastor for my mother in many aspects and a counselor. And But even then there were times that I would go to her and say, mom, I need to talk about some of this that happened when I was younger. I, I, I really need to, to open some of this up. And, and she would instantly stop me and the tears would come or she would get angry or, um, but most of the time was, why would you do that to me? Why would you, why would you, why would you make me feel bad about that? She just wanted to forget that it ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would honor that. Uh, and, and I wouldn't go there. So when I got into treatment, uh, and I had, to, I had to tell her because after that breakdown, I mean, in that post-traumatic stress disorder, I mean, for me, I, I realized this is an issue of life or death, Sean, you've got to get in and really, you've got to work through this. You've got to face this. And I remember saying to her, you know, mom, I will, I will respect if you don't want to go there, but I have to, my life's depending on it. And I've got to get it. I've got to really embrace this treatment with, with, you know, a hundred percent, if I'm really going to get well. And so I had to set some, some, some difficult boundaries. And one of those boundaries was that I, I have no communication with my mother currently. And that's really hard for people to understand and to wrap their heads around. We are a very small tribe. And, and the truth is, I, I believe we should be a much bigger tribe. I put my efforts into creating the very first thing that I created outside of working one-on-one is a boundaries course because of how difficult this is and how contrary to societal beliefs it is to set boundaries with your family to save your life and to save your sanity. You know, I could have put energy into writing a book or doing this, but that was the first sort of project that I've put out into the world because of how delicate it is. And you, I don't want to miss this point for our listeners because I know there are men listening. And I find that in abusive family systems, often what happens is very convenient for a low empathy mother who has a son. You know, I think there's such a natural you know, masculinity that wants to protect a female. I think that's very, very natural and mm-hmm. kind of who we are. The same way my maternal mm-hmm. energy, even though I'm not a mom, is very just protective out of a maternal place. And I think low empathy mothers often directly and indirectly abuse and manipulate a son to take to be their caretaker. Mm. Wow, that's that's insightful, Nikki, because that's 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 exactly the role that I took. I um, mean, I I I really tried to become my family's savior, especially my mother. I mean, I I rushed in, you know, time and time again, and I I I would I would counsel her, I would encourage her, I I would even set the pieces up for her to be able to to get away from my stepfather to make a change in her life. And time and time again, you know, and she did. I mean, you you saw in the story, she divorced him and then went back and remarried him again. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to learn, I had to learn that I had, well, first of all, I mean, we can't be anybody's savior, can we? Nope. And I had to, I had to learn that for myself, that my family, my family really, they wanted me there to listen to them and to cry with them and to give them the attention that they wanted. But when it really came down to making changes, my mother was never willing to make changes. I mean, I I saw that over and over and over. I mean, even since I was a child where she had opportunities to move her life forward and she would always go back. Mm -hmm. There's a special rigidity in dysfunctional families. Just a very special yeah. rigidity that I often see in my own family, in your story, in many of my clients over the years, that there just is not room for any flexibility in the growth area. It's like they are fixated in we cannot change. To change would mean that I had to admit something was wrong with what I previously yeah. did. And so many of those dynamics are yeah. Yeah. narcissistic that won't allow for that kind of self-reflection. I've come to the place where I don't even, I just, I don't even know that my mother's mind at this point is capable of going there. Yes. Like denial becomes delusion. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, she's still with my stepfather. He's been, he's been ill all these years, mentally ill all these years. And, and she's been his caretaker. He hasn't worked most of his life. She's been his caretaker. He's been her child and her husband mm-hmm. and, and, her pro, and her project. And, you know, I, I remember her telling me after hours and hours of discussion how things needed to change. But then when it came down to putting, you know, the legs to what that would require, her always coming back and saying, but I love him. You don't understand, but I love him. And it was always choosing him over her, you know, her children, choosing him over bettering her own life. It, it just, it, it, it became so, ah, it just, it, it, it's tragic. I mean, it's just tragic no matter how you cut it. And I, I think going back to that whole piece about people not being able to understand or see it, you know, when it comes to mothers, I, you know, I, I even remember the last time that I saw my dad, my dad was like, are you talking to your mother again? And then of course I had to try to find a way to say to him that the boundaries were necessary for my own healing. But again, I was talking to a person who had no language to understand anything that I was talking about. And I, and I basically had to get very stern with him at one point. And, and say that that discussion was, you know, we basically had to end the discussion around my mother, around the, the boundaries, mm-hmm. because he was reprimanding me harshly. How could anybody not talk to their mother? You know, and I remember when I got into treatment, my mother even using that towards me. What therapist would ever tell her child not to talk with their mother? Oh, yes. That shame is thick in dysfunctional families about that. I've gotten the same. It's so thick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so let me jump around a little bit, if I may, because I don't want to lose this opportunity to name for our listeners how in your story, church seemed to me to be both savior and then its own kind Mm. of abuser. I know. Well, I mean, you know, that little church, I, I continued to go. I really got involved. 
it gave me a place it gave me a place to go to where I felt safe. And I think we already established that it, it became even more so because I got, I, I would go to church Sunday morning. I would go to church Sunday night. I would go Wednesdays when I could. And there were people that would come to my house and take me. So I think my family felt obligated to let me go. Mm-hmm. Though my stepfather always used it as, as punishment of not letting me go at certain times. But I think he just wanted to keep the church people away. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he, he would let me go. Yeah. Take him, you know, and bring him back. But when I would come back, you know, it was, it was ridicule. It was shaming because of my belief in God. But for me, I, I really, that sense of community was very powerful for me. It was a very powerful piece. And even when I would get away from it, I, I, I always felt drawn back. And I, and I, did develop a very strong faith in a higher power. And I still have that today. That's, that's not changed at all. Now it's, it's, it's changed in terms of my belief system and, and, and the way I see my higher power dramatically it's had to, because it was literally destroying me. And I think that that's what you were getting at in my story things really began to take a turn when I started noticing at a young age that I, that I was attracted to boys. And of course the religion that I was involved with, you know, being a Christian, I was taught that that was, that that was incredibly sinful and that I was going to spend an eternity in hell thinking like that. So I did everything that I knew to do to change that thinking. You talk about trying to change the way we think. I mean, I, I did that to the umph degree as far as going into the ministry, becoming an ordained minister, marrying a woman. And, and, and yet there were all these points in my life where I knew that I was walking into something that I, my, that my heart, my soul, my, all of my emotional makeup was not in, it was not, they were not in, they were not playing but yet I did it because I felt like it was the right thing to do. That's what my, my teaching had, had taught me. And I was so afraid that I would spend an eternity away from God, who I believed was the one protecting me and keeping me moving and living. So it became this real love-hate relationship with my faith. I think it is for a lot of people, particularly any LGBTQ who grow up within that messaging. I mean, I, I'm a straight girl. Yeah. I'm a straight girl. But my very first awareness of shame with the church was learning the word bastard and going home mm-hmm. and asking my mother, does church and God think I'm a bastard because you were pregnant with me when you weren't married? And getting oh, that affirmed. Yeah. And they said, yes, that is what church and God And I thought, church and God thinks I'm a bad word, but I didn't do anything. I must be so bad. And I carried that for so long. So one of the things that just can is in maybe my top 10 of pissing me off (laughs) is the abuse that it is to tell a small child that anything that they do or think or feel could send them to hell. You know, if someone says that to my adult self now, oh, Nikki, you're going to burn in hell. I can blow that off. But as a child to actually sit with, to be a highly sensitive child and to sit with the idea that 
God could be so angry with me that I would burn up in hell. I mean, I can't think of of much that is more of an abusive message than that to the psyche. It was, it was, it was tormenting for me as a child, because I, I had such a strong sensitivity to my faith and to God. And, and I mean, you know, even in my story, uh, but I, I probably didn't even begin to touch on how, you know, I would literally sit in my bed at nighttime and talk to God. God became the person that I cried with, the person that I would talk to when I was alone, and I was a very lonely child. Um, so when I started to think that, that I was, that just from being who I was, was in opposition to God. It became, it really began to eat me apart from the inside out. You know, when I was working with my second therapist and I continued to to relapse working through recovery, my therapist said, Sean, I remember her telling me one day, I really believe that this peace this God peace with you is, is what is keeping you continuing to, to run back to self-medicate because it's such an important piece for you. And until you bring some resolve there, I don't know that you're ever going to find any peace, any true peace. And, and I remember her saying, Sean, can you somehow find a way in your relationship with God to just be okay with not having everything figured out and just not knowing, just not knowing. Can you find a way to come to that place? And I remember how terrifying that was for me. I mean, my, my, my second therapist uh, is a Buddhist. And so (laughs) I remember that that was the first, when I first found that out from her, I was like, can I, can, can I continue to to work with her? And (laughs) it's not an issue. It's not an issue with me at all today. I mean, I, I just, I love her dearly. She helped save my life. And I, but by the time that we finished working, you know, the three and a half years together, I mean, I had visited multiple different churches and, and who believed different ways and had, had come to the place where I was able to open my mind to shifting what I had always believed. I mean, I remember how scary even yoga was for me because I had been taught that yoga was demonic and it would open your mind to demonic spirits. And, and it, I was taught the it, same I, mm-hmm, I, and I'm a yoga teacher. I, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was so wrapped in fear. Yeah. I mean, I fear just drove my life. And as I began to experience some of these different belief systems and uh, visit some of these different places of faith, I remember being surprised that wow, I felt I felt God's presence there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I felt God's presence here. How could I, how could that happen? And I knew it was the same presence that I felt when I was younger in the ministry. It was the same. Mm-hmm. And it really started to touch me in a way and open my heart in ways that, had, that I, I didn't know was possible for me. Redefining is such a big part of healing. Having to redefine what we've been taught, what we've been told, 
and really like owning our own existence and giving ourselves permission to do that redefining. I I think that's what good therapists do. I love that you're naming for people seeing multiple therapists. We will have multiple healers. When our parents are the source of trauma, we will have multiple healers in our lives Multiple ones that help us with our bodies, ones that help us with our emotions, ones that helps helps us with spirit and certain healers that embody maybe sort of the whole pie of all of that healing. But we, yeah. we do. We need to open up to more and more messaging and people and healers. You know, I don't know if you follow Marianne Williamson, but she said something that I heard years ago. And I know it's one of her sort of old reliable statements that she pulls out a lot. But she really mm-hmm. says Anything that is psychologically sound is spiritually sound. And anything that is spiritually sound is psychologically sound. And ever since I've heard that, I have just, it has allowed me to settle sort of into myself and really know that Mm. there can be no other way. If it is not psychologically and spiritually sound, it just isn't for me. I so agree with what what you just said about there being multiple healers in our life. I think... And, and isn't it interesting how when we stop working with one, we may go for a period of time and then all of a sudden we start feeling that need again. Well, when the student is ready, the, the teacher arrives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We start feeling that need again to find a new teacher, to find a new you know, healer um, that will take us on to the next level. And I'm really starting to sense that it, once again in my own life. Oh. And and I think it's going to be more, probably more in a trauma survivor group setting. Yes. That's um, for me, that's kind of what, it, that's what I'm looking, that's what I'm looking into now. Good and um, Well, and you're yeah. being a healer for other people because you are a life coach in your own right. You also do physical like coaching in the gym and that can kind of bring us to your foundation story. So how did you go from this life yeah. to... Chester Street Foundation. Yeah, well, look, the the book took me the book took me three and a half years to write the book, and you know, wow, it was just the most grueling, rewarding, challenging, creative project I've ever done. But during that last year of writing the book is when this vision for starting a foundation came to me, and I remember thinking when it came time to putting a name on the foundation. Sean, why not take the name Chester Street that represented hopelessness and and pain to one little boy and turn that into something that would represent hope, healing, and restoration for children around the world. And that's how the Chester Street Foundation was born. And we, we started the foundation to provide a voice for abused children and to educate our community on childhood trauma particularly those on the front lines of the issue of childhood trauma, like teachers, healthcare workers, and caregivers. And so currently our programs are provided through educational trauma talks. We have a trauma talk for the community program, and we have the trauma talk uh, workshop for teachers program. So those are our current programs. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. If you were in Houston, that's where you do a lot of your talks. Yeah. And then do you also travel? Do you? Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. I'm also a keynote speaker. Okay. So I've been speaking for, I've been speaking for years (laughs) and, uh, and really enjoy it. And yeah, as we continue to develop these, 
these various programs, I will be be traveling nationally as a speaker as well. Well, anytime you want to come back and talk about anything that you spin up that you're doing, you are more than welcome. I am so happy to Thank host you. your voice as a healing man. You're other than my partner and producer, Chris, that you met earlier. We yeah. haven't had a man on the show yet, and it's been in, in the forefront. I am wow. such a big believer that we need uh, healing male energy. We need healing feminine energy in the world. And I, I love that you're sharing your voice and your story with our listeners. No, I'm honored. I'm really honored to 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 be a part of what you're doing. I think it's incredible. And I would love to come back anytime. You just let me know when. <laughs> I would love that. We're gonna have to meet in person one of these days. I've I've I feel the need yes. for a hug moment <laughs> with you. Oh, <laughs> uh, I would I would love that. We'll we'll definitely make that happen. I would love that, Sean. Thank you so, so much, Nikki. So let's give the proper information so that people can listen to you, and I know they're going to want to find you. ChesterStreetFoundation.org. You can find Sean yes. there. You can book coaching sessions with you. Is that correct? Give give your tell the world what you do. That's on SeanAlexNamath.com. So it's SeanAlexNamath.com. And it's ChesterStreetFoundation.org. Thank you. Good. That's where you can find Sean, listeners, and connect with him. Find his work. I know we have many teachers. We have many people that connect with children. And I, I love that your organization is out there spreading this word. I hope the listeners can also hear that me and Sean, we both were very good little kids, you know, very well behaved, didn't really show the world You know, our pain, because pain was in the house. So when we go out into the world, we're usually very well-behaved kids. And often these are the kids Mm. that fall through the cracks. Kids that are traumatized are not just the kids that are bullying other kids. They're not just the kids that are being Mm -hmm. physical and assaulting other kids. These are other good kids because often church and school is our savior from home. And that's where we behave so that we're allowed to continue being there. We don't want to act up. We're being hypervigilant little kids, being little good people to make damn sure we don't get kicked out of those places that feel safe and secure to us. So true. Thank you so much, Sean. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. I'm just sending you so much light and love. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Patreon supporters. Because of your generosity and support of the show, we were able to do our biggest pay-it-forward donation yet. Together, we were able to support Chester Street Foundation. So we are supporting Sean, supporting community, supporting teachers, and supporting traumatized children. There is a beautiful butterfly effect when we show up to do our healing, to be the change that we want in the world, thank you for being a part of how we can pay it forward and make the world a better place. I'm an emotional badass. Sean is an emotional badass. You are an emotional badass. And together, we are where Moxie meets mindful. Keep taking care of yourselves and each other. And until next time, bye-bye.